Today, we're looking at Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32. I remind you that the first three chapters of Ephesians are largely what is called the indicatives of, so that's a Greek verb. It's basically telling us who we are in Christ, what is true of us, and we went over those last week of all the things that are true of us in Jesus. And then now in the second half of the book, he's turning more to what are called imperatives, which are the commandments and things that we should do in light of the fact of what is true of us, that we are redeemed forgiven, loved, made right with God by grace through faith. And so now in light of that, not in order to be made right with God, but because we are, he's calling us now to walk in a way in a manner that is worthy of being a follower of Jesus. So let's look at this passage in verses 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. So we change clothes, uh, we change jobs, we change relationships, we change our location our looks change, <laughs> our health change, our health changes. But do we change at a heart level, at a character level, in the, in the way that it really matters? Can we actually change? Paul in Ephesus, or excuse me, in Ephesians, keeps talking about the fact that our walk needs to change, that our direction in life needs to change. He says in chapter four, verse one, uh, walk in a manner worthy of, of your calling. In 417, he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do, which is interesting because in, just in a previous chapter, he calls them Gentiles because they were. And he's, anyway, but he then says in 5.2, walk in love. 5.8, walk as children of light. 5.15, walk in wisdom. So what does he mean by this analogy of walking? He's talking about the direction of our lives. He's talking about where we're headed. And our life direction is moving us towards greater love for God 
And greater love for our neighbor on the one hand or in the opposite direction, greater love for ourselves. Which Paul is talking about the old self and the new self and he's using a mixed metaphor. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And, and this, this idea, the reason he's saying this is because we were born with an inclination to not love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and to not love our neighbor as much as our love ourselves but instead to build our life in and around us, our desires. That is what the fall is. That is what brokenness and sin is to build your life apart from God and instead to build it on our own selfish desires. He's talking about the direction. Our life direction is moving us closer and closer to faith and faithfulness or, or to unfaithfulness in the other direction. And so there is a truth about our life's direction and the signs along the way, to give you another uh, metaphor, <laughs> to mix up the metaphor even more, will tell us where we are. Talking about direction, talking about a journey, that's what he means by walking, where we're headed in life. There's a truth about our life's direction. Not in a moment, we all take detours and go, go the wrong way, but like over time, our lives are telling a story of a direction uh, that we're pointing in, a trajectory. And, and basically, it's a, two stories, one of moving closer to God and loving God, and the other is living and loving yourself more and more in your own selfishness. My parents used to have a, a place uh, on Lake Barkley in Kentucky, and we loved it as a family. It was a place where the whole family would gather, and, and we boated and sea dude and all that stuff, and it was so great. And we knew the way uh, to Cincinnati and to this lake back and forth. Like, it was so well-worn. We knew the path so well. And one day, we got into the car to leave the lake and go back to Cincinnati, and we got in the car, and we made our way, and we're driving along, we're driving along. And then I saw a sign that was welcoming us uh, to go to the Grand Old Opry. <laughs> I'd gone the wrong way. And I said to the family, uh, welcome to Tennessee, everyone. <laughs> like, we just spent an hour and a half heading to Nashville instead of Cincinnati. Your life is telling a story, the trajectory of your life. We're on a journey one way or another, and it's the signs that will point out the direction that you're heading. You may say you want to go to the beach uh, in Orange County, but if you get on the 10 East, you're gonna wind up in Tucson. Yeah, right, amen? And, and you don't wanna to go to Tucson. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've got a lot of friends in Tucson. So in our passage, Paul's mixing the metaphor, I'm mixing it up even more. He's describing what he means through walking on the one hand, a journey, but on the other hand, taking off things and putting on other things. Taking uh, off things and putting on other things. The walk metaphor, in, for, in verse 17 he says this, I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then in verses 20 through, 22 through 24 it says, put off your old self, uh, the sinful nature. Put it off, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Take some things off, put some other things on, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So I want you to think as we begin about the direction of your life. Are you paying attention to the signs in your life? What are they telling you? Where are you headed in this journey? And, and, and we're going to talk about this later. You have to be patient. 
it, you can't judge a life in a snapshot, in a moment. It's about trajectory, right? It's about the long journey. Where, though, in general, is the trajectory of your life? Think about what you would like to change or, or you actually need to change. Things that need to be taken off and things that need to be put on. What would the Spirit say to us today? Through his word, what, what would he be reminding us? What would he be calling us today? So when our boys were little, each one of them, it seems like we get really attached to a certain sh- uh, shirt <laughs> or a pair of uh, shorts that they never wanted to take off. And it didn't matter how dirty and grimy and nasty that shirt would get. You'd say, you need to take this off. You can't, no, you can't sleep in that tonight. No, no, you can't wear that again today. We have to wash it, you know, and you need to put something else on, right? Change is hard. Uh, they, they never wanted to take off these clothes. They, they became comfortable and well-worn, but change is hard. We're comfortable with who we are. And yet God is calling us to take some things off and to put some other things on. Now, here are some of the signs that Paul wants us to take notice of in this journey of life. And they'll indicate kind of which direction you're going in. He says in verse 25, to put on truth and to take off lying. Speaking truth to your neighbor, not lying to your neighbor or your loved one. Why? Because he says that we are members of one another. That's a huge theme for him, as we've seen. Unity, that we are one church, one body. This new life is characterized by love for God, love for others, and lying doesn't make sense in light of that. It just, it doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense. And so this has to be taken off. And truthfulness, living a life that's integrated with faith and living a truthful life has to be put on. Notice the emphasis of what holiness looks like. It's not just becoming so moral individually or just being introspective, but as being holy because of the way it impacts the body, the way that impacts your relationships, your friendships. Paul then says in verse 26, to take off anger, he says, in your anger do not sin. That's kind of an interesting statement. So he's saying there's a type of anger that's not sin, and we all know that's true. Uh, we sh- there are things to be angry about, and there's righteous indignation. We know Jesus got angry, but I want to warn you, uh, follower of Jesus, don't assume that your anger is righteous. In fact, I want you to be suspicious that your anger is probably not righteous indignation. I, I try to do that myself, just to say, I know I'm so predisposed to the wrong type of anger, as I have to be careful to not just assume, just because I'm angry at something, that's righteous indignation. And so he says, in your anger, do not sin. And he also says uh, to not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't be legalistic about that and like wake your dear spouse up that's sound asleep and you're like, we gotta, we gotta do this, the sun went down. Uh, it's more just saying, keep short accounts. Don't let the sun go down. Don't let there be days before you do uh, what is right and to, to get, get through the things that are causing uh, disruption in your relationship, to speak up to one another, especially in marriage. Don't remain angry. Speak words of redemption to one another. Speak the truth in love and then forgive one another. Anger should serve like a check engine light. And I've said this many times, most of us are angry at some point. 
But if your anger is reaching a point like where you're, you're saying to yourself, this is an unusual amount. Like my, my speech is not normally like this. My, my tone with my kids is not normally like this. My, my reaction time is really fast right now. That is a, 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 that is a warning light that's going off in the dashboard of your life saying, warning. Th- this is the wrong direction. A follower of Jesus, you know, shouldn't be... Um, uh, shouldn't be characterized as someone that is quick to anger, right? But slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Is the check engine light on in your life warning you there's an anger that keeps popping up and it's, it's a sign. You're headed in the wrong direction. He then says in verse 27 that unchecked anger and judgment, self-righteousness, it gives the devil an opportunity, right? A, a foothold. Warning, anger, self-righteousness, it gives Satan a foothold in your life and it's in opposition to the gospel, anger is. Why? Because God, who was just to be angry with us over our sin, did not put his anger on us. Instead, it went on his son on the cross so that we have peace with God. God has abolished the judgment. He's put to death everything and condemned that which has put us or condemned us. And so for us to be an angry people when we have been the recipients of such grace and forgiveness, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. In verse 28, he says to take off stealing and to put on work. Why? Interestingly, he says, so that you may have someone something to share with anyone who is in need. And so once again, the emphasis is don't just quit stealing, but, but you know, just get your own stuff. It's, it's also don't, don't steal, but the opposite of stealing would be to share, right? Don't just not steal. Uh, the opposite is not just get a job so you don't have to bug anyone. No, it's that you could be generous. Don't, don't steal, but instead Have enough so that you have an abundance, so that you can practice hospitality, that you can bless those who are in need. And then Ephesians 2, 4, excuse me, 4, 29 through 30, he says this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So much of the time we think of holy living, holiness as being related just to ourselves. But can you see how often Paul's emphasis is holiness is related to the way we are related to one another as the body, as a family, as the church, for our neighbor's sake. Take off corrupting language, not just because it's like a a mirror into your heart, which it most certainly is, but because is it edifying those around you. And so corrupting talk, he really is not just talking about cussing here. In fact, instead, he's talking about using your words to build people up instead of to tear them down. And so corrupting talk would be things like divisive talk and gossip and slander. And the opposite, God's call to us would be to use our words to literally to build people up. And he says that when we are divisive, when we're gossiping, when we're slandering, we grieve the spirit of God with which we were sealed. He doesn't say uh, we no longer have the spirit, but you can grieve the spirit. You know this if you've walked with Jesus. 
You grieve your parents who love you, would never leave you or forsake you, but you can make them grieve. In Ephesians 4, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. What a fitting word for us today where our nation and our culture is dividing and and social media literally could be defined as bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. He's saying, put it away from you. So what should we do? This is a tough word. This is a good word. This is a word that we need to hear. What direction is our life on? What, what are the warnings that we need to heed? What are, the, what are the things that are flashing in front of us saying, take note, check your life's engine? The first thing that I think Paul, if he were here, would say is that you have to begin always with faith and repentance. You begin with faith and repentance and you end with faith and repentance. Our walking, our direction, it doesn't earn our salvation, but it does, it does prove in a sense or demonstrate the presence of faith or love, or love. Not in a snapshot, not in a moment, not in one day, but over time on, the, on life's journey, it shows whether actually we have faith. We're not talking about our perfection, but our direction. We have Jesus' perfection. Now, what do you need for the journey? So we're talking about direction. We're talking about the life's, our lives' direction. What do we need? Well, if you're going to be wise in life, you need a map, right? And where would we be without Google Maps? Have you ever thought about like, what, it, what life was like before this, this supercomputer that we carry around and can tell us exactly where we are at all times? I mean, unbelievable. When traveling somewhere you don't know, uh, it's helpful, right, to have a map, to have an app, app open. When we were in France this summer, uh, we had kind of a family reunion, and so we all came in at different times from different parts of the country, uh, leaving from the United States, but all gathering together at this hotel in Paris, uh, right outside Charles de Gaulle. So we were among the last people to arrive, and then there was one more after us. So we got there one night, and then we waited for my nephew to come in the next morning early. So we all go over to Charles de Gaulle. We get him. We finally get in our rental cars, which they said was a minivan. So I don't know about you, when I think minivan in the United States, they're big. You can put a lot of people in them. You can cram a lot of stuff. So we got two minivans. <laughs> these minivans were about the size of three Americans, but we had 12 people. We had two of these for 12 people and all of our luggage for 10 days in Europe. So, okay, to say it was crowded, I can't even begin to describe how crowded we were in these two rental cars. We finally load up, and we had one family member that had spent a lot of time in France and was sort of the France expert. He'd even lived in France for a bit. And so he decided, and he's an older gentleman, he decided to be my co-pilot as we traversed from Paris up to Normandy. And as we did, he sat next to me, and he had his, I said, you got Google Maps open? I do. And I said, does anyone else, my daughter-in-law said, yes, I'm going to get it going. I got it open on my phone as well. We had three going at the same time. But I looked over at my co-pilots and it said that we will arrive in Normandy in 13 and a half hours. I go, I don't know if you've got that plugged in correctly. And he goes, no, no, I do. Uh, In France, they use military time. I'm like, oh, okay. 
So we start driving along. I'm driving and we're going and we're going. And he kept raising his hand as we'd pass a, a, a major exit. And he'd go, after we passed the exit, he'd go, we should have taken that exit. I'm like, okay, well, my map says to keep going, that we're on the right. And I'm like, Lauren, we good? Yeah, we're good. And then we get to the next exit and he'd say, we should have taken that exit. And then we should have taken that. And I finally just go, Google Maps is telling us where to go. And he's like, no, but if we should go this way. And so finally, an hour and a half later, when we finally got to a rest stop, he discovered what the great mystery was. Anybody want to take a guess? <laughs> he's a cyclist, and he had it on bicycle. So for, for hours, hour and a half, two hours, he's saying, we should pull over. And we're like, no, I'm not doing it. We're going to keep going. Today... <laughs> It's so important to have a map that's telling you where to go in the right direction. It would, <laughs> if we had followed the bike map, can you imagine how long it might have taken us to get there? Today, we tend to say that the individual uh, must decide and find their way. We have to look inside to find out what direction we should go, that we'll find the truth uh, within ourselves, but like if you're gonna follow Christ and what it means to be a Christian, then you need a map and you know where I'm headed with this and the scripture is our map. You need a map. Scripture is our, our map. Paul says there is a truth and that Christ and his word are truth and are our guides and we're so bent towards selfishness, we need a map that says, no, don't go that way. You get that? You, you do realize we're so, we're so selfish and so bent towards selfishness that even as Christians, we have to confess our sins together every week because we need to. And so God's word is our map. It's our direction. He says in Ephesians 4, 20 through 21, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Jesus is a truth. There is a truth. And Paul is saying God's word and Christ himself are that truth. And we need to conform our lives direction around what he says is the right path. When I was a younger man and a, and a brand new Christian, I kind of assumed that whatever I thought in life was the truth. And that God would agree with me. And I started reading the Bible for the first time. And as I read it, I, I found many places where I thought life's path should be this way, but God's word was pointing me in a different direction. And then my intuition was often just about me. It was about myself, about my own selfish desires. But his word often contradicted me. And that's good. We need that. God is saying, look, there's a direction I need to send you. And his word often pointed me in a different direction that I would have naturally gone. God's word is a means of grace. It's a map for our life. The next thing is this. You need friends on the journey. You need community. You can't do it alone. Uh, traveling alone is really not that fun, is it? I mean, it's, it can be fun, but it's not that fun. Uh, so one of our closest friends uh, took his family on a huge European vacation this summer, just like us, right before uh, we left. They went on their big European adventure, and then he got back, and they came over, and they showed us pictures, and we couldn't wait. We couldn't wait to go ourselves. They had been in Paris. They were showing us all the pictures. There was so much excitement around this trip. It was a trip of a lifetime for this family. But like three weeks later, he went to Europe again, but by himself. 
for 10 days on, on work vacation. And he got back and was like, how was he? He's like, eh, it was good, it was work. He was basically in the same places that he was with his family just weeks earlier, but because he was alone, it was not the same experience and the whole, you know, work thing. But because one of my main problems is my selfishness, you can't grow in being selfless without other people. You can't, you can't, you can't grow in holiness without having an object of your affections to say, I need to use my speech to build up others. We have to be close with one another. We need, we need providential relationships. And as I just think about the people in my life that have made a difference for me spiritually, it's been one of the greatest graces I've received. God's word and God's people are indispensable. And so I would encourage you, if you're checking out our church or you're newer to our church, get to know the people of this church. Don't stay on the sidelines. Push in. Get closer. Join a small group. Come to one of the studies. Uh, come early. Stay late. Uh, go to lunch. Be, be the church. Uh, it's not a spectator sport, Christianity. It's about being the church. It's about being a family. You'll grow. It will change the, your trajectory of your life by having providential relationships in your life. You need a map you need God's word. It's a means of grace. God's people are a means of his grace. And you need time. I can't tell you how many times uh, we've driven back east since moving here uh, with our family when the boys were younger with three kids. And when you're traveling in a long, for a long time, what do kids always ask? Are we there yet? Over and over. And then they say a lot of other stuff too, but that's something that gets repeated a lot. Are we there? Are we there and you're just like, no, we're not there, but be patient, be patient. Change takes time. If we're talking about a journey, a long journey, you need to be patient with yourself, even. And you need to be patient with others, especially those that you're closest with. We can't talk about growth in the gospel uh, in a snapshot, one moment, one time, one, one wrong exit, or one, one time where you turn around. And, and to repent literally means to do a 180. So if you're headed in the wrong direction, I've got good news for you. Uh, repentance and faith is the beginning and the end of your relationship with Jesus. You begin your relationship with Jesus through repentance and faith, and you continue that relationship through repentance and faith. Do a 180. Do you see warning signs? Turn around then. Repent. And by the way, as you do, it doesn't mean because like you're in with God's grace, you're out of God's grace. It just means this is what the Christian life looks like. Repentance and faith. Be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with others. Repentance and faith are the beginning and end. And lastly, of course what we need is faith, hope, and love. You need God's truth. You need God's people. You need patience, long-suffering, and you need hope. How many of you are optimists? You're just optimists all the time. Not many optimists. <laughs> wow, okay. I mean, you guys are the good congregation here. Like, you're the best service. So like, if you're not optimists, I'm a little worried. So, like, so how many of you are optimists? Like, some of you, okay, a little more bold. How many of you are more pessimistic? Okay, yeah, me too. Uh, so here's the thing. I've seen over and over again, uh, optimism helps you face life's trials. It, it really does. Uh, if you're a pessimist like me, it's, it's a challenge. Like, the optimists do better than the pessimists. 
But the reality is optimists also can have hope in really thin things, uh, very trivial things. Uh, and I have the spiritual gift of bursting people's bubbles, you know, and saying, I don't know if that'll work, you know. But optimism is not just what we're talking about. We have predispositions. So whether you're an optimist or whether you're a pessimist, I have good news for you. There is great reason to hope as a follower of Jesus. The entire story of the Bible is that God is going to redeem and restore everything that is broken, everything that is wrong in this world. And so our hope and our faith are rooted in a firm foundation that is an old story. It's an ancient one that's been going on for thousands of years that God has been telling in Scripture but also in church history through faithful people witnessing and testifying to us saying, run the race. We have a firm foundation. We have a faith that is rooted like a tree with profound roots, an anchor that is strong. And we can love and forgive others because we have been given so much forgiveness, so much grace. Listen to what it says in verse 32 as we close. And what a word we need today in the midst of what we're involved in in our culture. Verse 32, be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ forgave you. How much has Jesus forgiven you? <laughs> Everything. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. And yet we often withhold forgiveness towards others. And I know it's a process and that's a sermon for another day, but be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, for every soul in this room, I just pray that you would be with us and showing us the signs in our life of where we are, what direction we're heading in. Uh, many of us, Lord, need to turn, turn around. We, we've taken the wrong turn. We're heading to the wrong place. Holy Spirit, would you do the work that only you can do and, and bring conviction and hope and love and faith and turn, turn lives around? We pray for change for every one of us. All of us need to change. All of us need to grow up into maturity. So would you help that, help that happen, Lord, by your power, by your grace, and by your mercy, in Jesus' good name we pray, amen.